Attention everyone, this is an emergency broadcast. The unpleasant noise you are about to hear coming from your radio is not a mistake. Please do not turn off your radio, but turn up the volume on your receiver as high as it can go so that you can make the sound we broadcast as loud as possible. The monsters will now start attacking Tokyo. You may wish to deny it, but your eyes tell you it's true. Sound. I'll turn up the sound so you can hear the monsters dueling to the deck. Why, hello, and welcome to episode 246 of the Kaiju Cast, a podcast 100% dedicated to Godzilla and all of his rubber suited foes. My name is Kyle, and this is the second episode of September 2018 and our Daikaiju rediscussion for 1975's Terror of Mechagodzilla, the last of the Godzilla Showa era films. I'm going to warn you right now, I don't know how long this episode is going to go. I did a lot of research while I was uh, preparing for this episode. Quite a bit more than I actually anticipated doing, especially considering I'm not a huge fan of this film, but it's another one of those movies that I feel really has a better backstory, uh, better sort of like behind the scenes connectivity than the actual film itself. Now, we're going to hear all about that later and all about my thoughts later. First things first, I thought I'd kick things off with a song from Akira Ifukube from Terror of Mechagodzilla. This is Invader's Last Moments. Once again, class, it is time for our Daikaiju discussions. Every month, the Kaiju cast takes a look at one particular film from the giant monster landscape and tasks the listeners with submitting their thoughts, questions, and reviews for the following discussion episode. This year, we are re-examining some of the films we covered a long, long time ago. We originally talked about Terror of Mechagodzilla with Martin, Cindy, Heather, and Justin. Talk about voices from the past. And that is way back in episode 28. 28! <laughs> It was over 200 episodes ago. Wow. We're coming back to talk about this one again. This is one of the ones that the listeners voted on, 
And then my co-hosts and I sort of whittled down that list. And this month, we're talking about Terror of Mechagodzilla, or as it was released in Japan, Mechagodzilla no Gyakushu, or Mechagodzilla's Counterattack. Toho released this on March 15th of 1975 as part of their Toho Champion Matsuri. That was the film festivals that we actually just talked about in the last episode where Toho put together like an entire matinee program for kids. And then that was what was playing when the kids were out of school and they were competing directly with Toei's animation festival. Anyway, listen to episode 245 if you want to hear all about that. I talk about it at length at some point in that episode. Terror of Mechagodzilla is the 15th film in the Godzilla series and the last of the Showa era. This film is a direct sequel to the previous film, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, kind of, and we'll get to that in a minute. First, let me say this. I'm here by myself right now, and I've done a lot of reading on this, and I don't have anybody to really bounce things off of, so bear with me if I get a little intense about some of this stuff. Secondly, let's talk about who made this film. Terror of Mechagodzilla was directed by Ishiro Honda. It was produced by Tomiyuki Tanaka, and the score is by Akira Ifukube. Now, those are sort of the big three names that were brought back. Some people like to mention that Soke Tomioka was the assistant cameraman on uh, the original 1954 Godzilla, and he did the cinematography for Terror of Mechagodzilla. The movie's story concept and screenplay were written by Yukiko Takayama, now, she is the only female screenwriter for the Godzilla series, at least up until this point. I think maybe even beyond that, though. And according to an interview with Takayama by David Milner, this was actually her first screenplay. Literally right out of her screenwriting classes, she entered this Toho story contest and won. And she attributes this to Toho just being desperate for new material. Apparently, the script was so good that they didn't even really need to rewrite it. Tanaka just asked her to whittle down a couple of scenes. Apparently, all of Tokyo was supposed to be destroyed in the opening or something like that. And then the big one was that instead of one monster, Titanosaurus, there were two monsters called Titans that fused together. And of course, Toho was not spending a lot of money on their movies at that point. So the effects budget was whittled down, you know. I'm sure they gave it more than they did for some of the previous films because they were trying to make this sort of a big last hurrah for Godzilla. And again, if you listen to that last episode, we're talking about the numbers of tickets sold in Japan for these Godzilla films. This had the lowest, like, of all time, at only 980,000 tickets sold in Japan. And that's a little bit of a disappointment, because not only were those three big names, Tanaka and Honda and Ifukube involved, but they actually had a pretty big cast for this as well, with some very familiar faces, which we will talk about in just a minute. You're probably wondering... Why I keep saying that stuff. That's because, oh, listeners, 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 I have done a lot of research on this movie. But I still have a few questions. So I thought it would be really cool to reach out to some friends of mine. You guys know Steve Rifel and Ed Gojicheski, the authors of Ishiro Honda, A Life in Film from Godzilla to Kurosawa. So I'm very interested in finding out why Ishiro Honda came back to the Godzilla series after he sort of did what I guess people would have assumed it would have been his last tokusatsu film, which would have been Space Amoeba in 1970. So I've actually asked Ed Gojicheski and Steve Rifle on to just briefly tell us a little bit about what Honda's career was like in between these two points of uh, 1970 and 1975. Because, of course, they wrote 
the biography on Ishiro Honda. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. Hello. Uh, I think one thing you didn't mention there, but maybe uh, it's implied, is uh, Honda retired in 1970 after he made Space Amima. It wasn't that he was let go or... I mean, the, the, the movie business certainly was uh, in sharp decline, but he made a conscious decision to, to leave Toho and basically re- and to retire from directing films. Why did he come back five years later? We don't have a, I don't think, a definitive answer for that. It was one of the questions that I think we wanted to answer or try to ask when we set out to write the book. There's always, you know, questions that are nagging at you that you'd like to answer. But that was one of the ones that I don't think we, we could come up with a, a definitive answer. Even, even Honda's son didn't really know exactly why he came back to direct that film. But you also have to ask, why did he come out of retirement to direct all those television shows? There were a number of TV shows for Tsuburaya Productions and, uh, and other companies uh, in between. 70 and 75 that he worked on why did he work on those yeah well i mean i i think that uh you know what we had heard was that uh the all the the work that he had done on tv was he was he was being asked uh at least initially you know his first involvement with tv shows was uh for subraya productions he was being asked by you know the family of subraya to help out with uh some of these shows to kind of to film a few of them as kind of like models for uh, the, the the subsequent directors to follow and, and also to kind of train uh, both the technical staff and some of the actors in doing that. And out of respect for Tsuburaya, A.G. Tsuburaya, Honda accepted those. And I think, you know, one of the things that we surmised uh, and probably, and, and there's probably some truth to this. I, I believe there must be. Uh, one of the reasons he he d- directed those television shows was a loyalty to Tsuburaya and to to other people that he had worked with before. But I think that's pro- probably one of the primary reasons why he accepted the job of uh, directing Terror of Mecha Godzilla was a, a sense of loyalty to Toho and to particularly to Tomoyuki Tanaka, who had uh, basically uh, helped start him on the path of um, science fiction films. There was also uh, the screenwriter, uh, Yukiko Takayama, who uh, had written the, the script, wanted Honda to direct the film, and that, that was part of it as well. But you have to think about it. I mean, it's interesting, I think, because he, one of the reasons he retired was that he wasn't able to make the films in the way that he was accustomed to anymore because of all the adverse conditions brought on by uh, the changes in the business and the sort of downturn in the studio, the changes in the way contracts were administered. And then, you know, he comes back and he makes this film and those conditions had only gotten worse. And in fact, by this point, the Godzilla films were being released as part of a a matinee series. Although he respected the, the children who were fans who wrote him fan letters and all that, he you can read in his comments through the years, through the 60s, uh, a sense of um, conflict over the fact that Godzilla and, and the whole genre had been turned into children's entertainment. And by 75, it was purely children's entertainment, even though he tried to, you can see in this film, he tried to make it uh, more like the, the more, I don't know, mature or um, uh, more straightforward films uh, of the 60s, of about a decade earlier. 
I, I don't know that I would say that, uh, at least in my opinion, I don't know that he, he was necessarily showing any kind of loyalty to Tonyuki Tanaka. If he had been showing loyalty, I don't know that he would have given up directing back in the 70s and and, and in the early 70s and uh, passed on you know subsequent Godzilla films in May between that time and pair of Mecha Godzilla. Uh, and really, he had had enough, and uh, he was, you know, from what we had heard, he was enjoying his yeah. his uh, time in retirement. So it really comes as a as a, a total mystery as to why he took this film. And when we when talking to Ryuji, his son, he said, you know, he even said it really is a mystery to him. Nobody really could understand why he would have done that because the conditions, as Steve mentioned had only gotten worse from the time that he had retired to, to this point in time. Yeah. So it, it's really kind of hard to imagine why he would have done that. There's no, no compelling reason you can think of. I mean, the, the, in grasping for straws, I mean, uh, I think Ryuji had mentioned that this uh, screenwriter Takayama was also from Yamagata, you know, where, where he you know, grew up as a kid, and he thought, well, maybe that had something to do with it that, that you know he was more inclined to take a job to you know help someone like that out but yeah it's it's really hard to say because it, you know, it's, and you know if you think of why he was doing the the tv work okay that's out of you know some respect for pg sobriya and his people and and he was you know looking at it as a way to you know train staff for uh, you know, future jobs but None of that really applies here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tsuburaya had nothing to do with Terameka Godzilla. He wasn't really training anybody. Most of the, the people that he re- they were working with him that, at that time were basically veterans. Yeah, so, but you know, he had done the um, the Zone Fighter shows yeah. for for Toho, as, and that was for uh, for Tanaka as well. Yeah. So it's not like he completely ever. That's the thing. He retired. But he didn't completely walk away. He was working intermittently during those years, just not you know at the same frequency that he had been during the height of his career. Uh, he clearly still enjoyed doing some work, but yeah, he uh, based on what everything his his family told us, he was enjoying his his life, his quiet life, you know, at home. And, and that this is also kind of the period where he eventually bumped into Akira Kurosawa again on the golf course, and and they. Eventually, you know, their friendship turned into a partnership. So, um, yeah, we don't really have a great answer. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, like the, the 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 Godzilla movies were, and the the Tokusatsu type films were really like uh, second class films by this point. I mean, and, and at, at a, a certain point, uh, you know, they were making them and, and putting them directly into these champion festivals, these matinee marathon kind of events that, that Toho did. But eventually they stopped producing the Tokusatsu or the Kaiju films for that for that series altogether and just replaced them with Disney films that they were releasing and Doraemon cartoons because the Kaiju films weren't making money anymore. So uh, we don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I would say also, if someone's going to speculate that maybe he did it for money, I would say that's probably no. the, the last reason he would have ever done thing, you know any kind of directing job yeah because you know he directed because he just loved films and loved to make films and in addition he had 
<clears throat> virtually no awareness of uh, his, his own and his family's financial situation. Mm-hmm. He depended completely on his wife for that. Mm-hmm. And he was so clueless at, uh, about money that he would you know, regularly go out of the house without enough money. And he'd come home and just basically ask his wife to take care of you know, things for him. He never really you know, understood the what was going on in the company's finances. That was totally his wife's doing. So, but you know what? What you just said is probably the best answer to this question. He, you know, he probably did it more than anything just because he liked making movies, yeah. and this was another chance to make one. It's impossible to know whether he knew as he was making this whether it was going to be his last feature film, and then and we do know that. There were at least some discussions about him directing the 84 film. Um, yeah. And then he re- ended up recommending somebody else to do that. Uh, I don't know how serious the studio was about having him do that. But. Well, I'm sure the studio was serious, but uh, he never was. Yeah. I mean, by that point, he had pretty much cemented his relationship with Kurosawa. And, right. He was on a completely different yeah. path by then. So yeah. why would he give that up to yeah. do that? So like, was there any indication that he was pleased with the outcome of Terror of Mechagodzilla? You know, the, the, when you read his comments about his films from the 60s and, and I guess in the 70s too, but he's always kind of conflicted. You know, that it's really interesting to read his interview comments from that time period because he clearly is trying his best to rationalize, you know, the the, the – the restrictions within which he's having to work. And I know, and we quote in the book, there's um, some comments that were published about the terror of Mechagodzilla where, you know, he's talking about the themes of the film and and why it was uh, interesting to him. But he's also clearly grappling with the fact that Godzilla is now this kid's superhero, you know, which was never his intention. And it was something that I think he really, really struggled with. Even in this movie, you know, he's trying to, basically bring it back to something closer to what he, you know, he had been doing back in the day. Cause by that point, you know, they had made things like Godzilla versus Hedera and Gigan and which is, you know, those are purely and Megalon, especially those are children's films. Megalon is essentially, you know, heavily influenced by the, the, the TV shows that, you know, were originally heavily influenced by the films. So it had kind of come full circle there. And he's trying to pull this back to a certain extent. And I think that's why I think the film has, at least among fans, you know, a, a certain reputation. A lot of people really like this movie and, and because it's so different from the, the previous 70s films. It's darker and it's more serious and it doesn't have a little kid, you know, steering the story along. But it's made for a matinee. It's, that's the strange thing about it. He, you know, he made a film with more, I don't know, I don't, I hesitate to use the word mature, but um, uh, more serious and more straightforward content. And yet it's being produced for an, uh, a child audience, a little kid audience, not just yeah. a child audience. But that kind of goes with, you know, his attitude towards kids. He, he always would, would say, you know, that, you know, adults, when they're making kids movies, they would often try and do things the way they thought kids would think. And, you know, kids are you know, smarter than that, that you need to give them more credit. He would always try and respect you know, the, the entire audience, including the kids, not kind of write down to them or condescend to them, despite the fact that, yeah, basically was more geared towards yeah. that kind of audience. But he didn't make it that way. 
Well, it's it's the script isn't uh, written that way, and it's the, the whole project is kind of weird in that regard because you know Honda made family, tok- you know Tokusatsu films that were family oriented. Mothra is a family film. Um, Godzilla's Revenge is a a kids film, and um, so he could make films that were expressly for you know a very young audience. And that, the weird thing about this movie to me is that it's much darker than any of those, and yet it was marketed you know, as a matinee film for little kids. It's, yeah. that's really interesting, but you know, it, it got greenlit and, and he made it. And, and so, you know, I don't know if people were pushing, pushing him to make it in a different way, but he made his own film. And I think that's why people like it so much. And of, of the, of that cycle of films from the seventies, it really stands out in that regard because yeah. it, it doesn't condescend to, to kids or to anybody else. And it kind of has this whole, um, Interesting now to look back on it. This the, the character of Katsura is um, completely uh, subjugated by the end of the movie. I mean, she's basically turned into a you know a cyborg and a, a surrogate of the aliens. That's a really dark story, you know. And she dies. She gives up her life, you know, with her last vestiges of humanity. She she um, saves the world. And um, yeah, it's it's. It's a good movie. I, I really enjoy it. The, the, the funny thing is, like, I don't know. It, I, I know it got some sort of minimal theatrical release in, in the United States, but I saw it on television. Uh, the world They called it the world premiere of, of Terror of Mechagodzilla on Channel 9 in Los <laughs> Angeles. It's probably 78 or 79, 78, 79. And I remember even then as a child thinking how kind of kind of dark and depressing this movie was like the mood you know it struck you with was was different it wasn't happy or uh, and then that ending shot where he's carrying her out on the cliff you know the the body of katsuda and they watch godzilla swim away that's 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 very different it's a moving ending for the showa era mm-hmm Thank you guys so much for sharing your thoughts on Honda's work and of course if the listeners out there have not read it I can absolutely now say you should read the Ishiro Honda biography because it is awesome. <laughs> you read it. I read the whole thing. Oh, I'm so proud of you. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. All right. Getting back to it now. Let's actually talk about some of the non-human characters for a moment. As we know, Haruo Nakajima stopped portraying Godzilla in 1972. Godzilla vs. Gigan was his last performance as the King of the Monsters. 1973's Godzilla vs. Megalon saw Shinji Takagi playing Godzilla. And then Godzilla in 1974's Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla was played by Isao Zushi. Fast forward to Terror of Mechagodzilla. Godzilla is played by Toru Kawai. Kawai also played Ultraman Ace. He was Godzilla in the Zone Fighter episodes. He worked on Ultraman Taro. He worked on Ultraman Leo. Apparently, he was Gamera at one point and also played the Tyrannosaurus in The Last Dinosaur by Toei. Titanosaurus was played by Tatsumi Nikamoto. Nikamoto's roles included Zone Fighter's Garoga Barans, Ultraman Leo on Ultraman Leo. He was something in Ultra 7. He was Eisenbow in Dinosaur War Eisenborg. And of course, that's all on top of him being Titanosaurus in this film. And then last but not least, Issei Mori played Mechagodzilla. That's the same guy that played Mechagodzilla in the last film. Now, the reason I wanted to put off talking about the cast 
is because this movie exists in a weird universe where sequels like don't necessarily need continuity. There are several inconsistencies that really don't necessarily detract from the story. But if you're like a comic book nerd in the 70s, wouldn't these like bug the crap out of you? So since this is a sequel where Godzilla and Mechagodzilla exist, in addition to Angulus, why on earth would it be so ridiculous for Dr. Mafune to have found a dinosaur? They clearly exist in this universe, specifically in the last film. You have Godzilla and Angulus, both kaiju, specifically dinosaurian, not to mention the giant dog monster King Caesar. Scientists are clearly meaner than I'd been led to believe. Now, we all know Mechagodzilla was defeated by Godzilla and King Caesar at the end of the last film in Okinawa. Terror of Mechagodzilla opens with the submarine crew poking around looking for the remains of Mechagodzilla, but near the Bonin Islands, which are about 1,400 kilometers due west of Okinawa. It's also a sequel, right? So maybe, Toho, you shouldn't get the same actors to portray different characters. In the first Mechagodzilla film, Akihiko Harada plays a nice, well-mannered scientist, Professor Miyajima. Here, he plays the mad scientist, Dr. Shinzo Mafune. Also, can I just make a quick comment on the drastic change between the sort of tortured mad scientist who we can, you know, empathize with in Akihiko Harada's performance of Dr. Serizawa compared to what we get as Dr. Mafune. It's like night and day, I guess, but they're still playing the same basic trope character. Anyway, in addition to Harada, Masaki Daimon plays Keisuke Shimizu in Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, who, if you're also paying attention, you'll note he's the bionic escapee who's cornered and gunned down by the aliens in this film. The alien commander in the first film is played by Goro Mutsumi, and he also plays the alien commander in this second film, but they are different characters. In addition to having different names, Kurunoma, from the first, has a large bruise-ish birthmark on his human face, while Terror of Mechagodzilla's alien leader Mughal just doesn't. So let's go ahead and merge this into our Familiar Faces segment that I've been doing recently. The other alien we see, Suda, is played by Toru Ibiki, who was a background character actor at Toho in the 1960s. He was one of the assassin's henchmen in Ghidra and an alien from Planet X and Monster Zero. Aside from his role of Ryota's missing brother, Yata, in Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, perhaps you've taken note of his photo on display in Destroy All Monsters when the government is broadcasting the Watch Out for These Individuals alerts. Additionally, Kinji Sahara makes an appearance as the military commander. Katsuhiku Sasaki is back in this film as the male love interest, Akira Ichinose, but he wasn't in the first Mechagodzilla film. We last saw him in Godzilla vs. Megalon, inventing Jet Jaguar as Goro Ibuki. I've been looking for a little redemption from the next background character I want to bring up, and that is because I believe I have overlooked him when I've spoken about some of these actors in the past. Ikkyo Sawamura is just one of those guys that both blends into a crowd and, when it's required by the size of the role, can just turn on that character. I feel like every time I see him, he's playing roles with like a little pizzazz, and he's really identifiable. He was born September 4th, 1905, and between 1957 and 1965, Sawamura appeared in six Kurosawa films, including The Town Police Officer and my favorite, Yojimbo. 
His first kaiju film was 1962's King Kong vs. Godzilla as one of the Faroe Islanders. You might recall his role in Godzilla vs. The Thing, a.k.a. Mothra vs. Godzilla, as the Shinto priest who tells the villagers, Oh, what is wrong with you? Remember, the gods will look after you. Have faith. I'll offer prayers to them. You'll be protected from any monster's curse. Or the fisherman in Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster, who turns in Princess Selena's things at the police station. And he plays the only Mondo Islander in King Kong Escapes, felled by Doctor Who. In 1968's Destroy All Monsters, he found the Keylak control device in a mountain stream. There are so, so, so many more small roles. According to Akira Kurosawa.info, Saramura's background was in live theater, where he was a popular comic actor. He and his high-pitched voice turned out to be in great demand also in the film world after he joined Toho Studios in 1954, with Sawamura going on to make over 130 appearances in just two decades, and almost exclusively for Toho Films. Unfortunately, Sawamura-san died September 20th, 1975, just six months after this movie was released. And while it is really nice to be able to see him in his final role, he does look very gaunt, and apparently sickness had kept him away from acting for a little while. And last but not least in this segment, and just because I'm not sure if it will be mentioned during the discussion, but one of my favorite familiar faces makes a return in this film, and that, my friends, is Space Titanium. I know, it is the stupidest-sounding Toho sci-fi invention but I can't get enough of this stuff. Okay, so I was talking about the familiar faces because I wanted to point out the weirdness of this being a sequel to a movie that was released the previous year, both of which wouldn't know the word continuity if it was looming impossibly over the horizon. I just think it never really occurred to Toho to really put any effort into continuity. Oh, actually, perhaps maybe... They're focusing their continuity on what they think matters in this film, and that is the monsters. Because clearly, Godzilla remembers Mechagodzilla. Clearly, their fight pretty much plays out in the opening of the film, establishing it as the only continuity of the movie. And then he hurled him into the sea. Sounds to me like Godzilla was totally due for a retcon. But that's not this movie, that's a later film. And actually, let's jump into the future. Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla gets released to theaters in the United States in March of 1977 by CinemaShares. Henry Saperstein sold Terror of Mechagodzilla's distribution rights to Bob Kahn Enterprises, who then chose to retitle the film Terror of Godzilla. Cause what's a Mechagodzilla, right? Bob Kahn hacked the Toho film into something that would earn a G rating for the kids and released it theatrically in March of 1978 with that title. Terror of Godzilla. I'm going to include an image of that poster in the show notes for this episode. You can see why one might be confused about the movie they're about to watch, especially if they had seen Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla the previous year. Godzilla, champion and defender of Earth in The Terror of Godzilla. Titanosaurus, Mechagodzilla, destroy them. He holds the front line of battle while in their spaceships, aliens command a deadly duel. Will the powerful serpent Titanosaurus' cyclone tail and the robot monster Mechagodzilla's lethal rays destroy our Earth? See this ultimate test of power, the terror of Godzilla, rated G. And now let's fast forward to later that year when Hank Saperstein takes the Toho edit 
cuts out Katsura's exposed faux memories and adds this crazy monologue intro that plays over a montage of footage from like almost all of UPA's Godzilla library, including Monster Zero, War of the Gargantuas, Godzilla's Revenge, and more. Hopefully, this prologue will not confuse you too, dearest listener. Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Nobody knows the origin of this indestructible monster. But many people believe Godzilla was some kind of an ancient god. Others felt Godzilla was a prehistoric monster, awakened from a million years sleep by atomic explosions. Thinking this awesome creature a threat to civilization, attempts were made to destroy Godzilla with modern war machines. To Godzilla, these implements of destruction and their tremendous firepower were merely toys. He batted them away and easily destroyed them. Annoyed and angered by this attack, Godzilla set out to destroy the cities. of his screeching roar and earth-shaking footsteps sent thousands running from their homes, fearing for their lives. He crushed all in his path and set the countryside aflame with his fiery breath. All of man's military might was no match for Godzilla. Bullets, tanks, rockets. They had no effect on this giant. Fierce attack left the cities in ruin. There seemed to be no way of stopping this 600-ton monster, as whole city blocks became a raging inferno. Then, from the black hole of outer space, invaders from other planets and galaxies decided this was the opportunity to take over the Earth. Returning to normal. But Godzilla, like an animal protecting his home territory, decided to unite with the Earth people in attempting to fight off the invaders. Godzilla the terrifying monster now becomes Godzilla the friend and ally. To cope with Godzilla, the invaders used monsters of their own. Many fierce battles took place with these frightening monsters. Godzilla was put to the full test of his strength. But in the end, Godzilla and the Earth people were victorious. Other sinister minds from outer space decided that the only way to take over the Earth and destroy Godzilla would be with another Godzilla-like creature. A huge robot monster, impervious to anything. Mecha Godzilla. In their first encounter, a furious battle took place, in which Godzilla almost met his match. Godzilla called upon heretofore unknown powers to defeat his mechanical counterpart. And then, he hurled him into the sea. Joining me here in the studio, we just finished watching Titanosaurus, 
and Mechagodzilla beat the snot out of Godzilla, and then Godzilla beat the snot out of those guys in Terror of Mechagodzilla. We have Dave Helfrey. Hi! And Adam Alexander. Hello. And, uh, you know, this was real fun, having you guys over to watch this movie. I'm sure that we have all seen it a kajillion times, Dave. Uh, like four times. Really? I think like, like yeah, like it's not it's not my favorite of the Showa films, you know, so. I yeah. kind of figured you would have seen this a lot as a youngster. Well, I saw it a few, yeah, a few, you know, actually maybe, I guess it was on the Saturday Creature feature a lot. I might have seen it more than that, just not really consciously. Gotcha, gotcha. Know, but, a uh, Adam, how oh, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. I, uh, of course, as a kid, um, I mean, I didn't keep track and the memories aren't too fresh, but, uh, watching it on television many, many times and since being able to own it on VHS and or DVD and so forth, uh, it's definitely one of the staples. It's one of my go-tos when I just want to pop in a Godzilla movie. Awesome. I certainly never saw the version with the fake robo breasts. Right. That was so that was very much Saturday afternoon monster feature. Right. The only so basically anytime that played on American television that was without yeah. Leb, Leb Boots. I have never seen that before. Yeah. So, okay, Adam, I also want to mention just because it's been a while, a little while since you've been on the show, if people are not as familiar with you as a voice, for one, they should know that you did the Monster Project CD. Which you can listen to in an episode way back. We talked to Adam, good lord, like 2011, maybe? It was a few years ago, yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, anyway, so it should be noted that Adam recorded this and it's got some Ifukabe tracks from this movie on it. So that's absolutely going to come up later in the discussion for sure. Awesome. Now, let's get to me. I've seen this <laughs> a bunch. <laughs> No, I don't know. It's it, I'm kind of in the same camp as you, Dave. I like it, like but it, I but don't love it. Yeah. And uh, I have some issues with it. Yeah. And we're going to hash all of those out tonight, you guys. <laughs> but the, the, the main point I want to drive home here is that this is a movie that sort of sits in the middle of the road for me in Godzilla movies. And as many people know from listening to the show, this is like a – I don't have like a set-in-stone list – of these movies is an organic thing that just constantly flexes and moves right now, especially since I've done a bunch of research about terror of Mechagodzilla. I kind of like it a little bit more than I had before. <laughs> Let's go ahead and talk about your initial thoughts, I guess. I mean, it's not like you hadn't seen this before. None of us, we'd all seen it many times before. For sure. But I guess, was this the first time you'd seen it subtitled? Absolutely. I don't recall, honestly. Um, I maybe, maybe not. Okay. All right. So we're just going to go with yes for everybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, as and just in terms of a different presentation, maybe. How do you think about it being big screen Japanese language English subtitles? There were actually some in some ways uh, you could just see the zippers more, mm. you know, on everything that was going on. You know what I mean? Like the there's a there's a very obvious scene. And this even bugged me when I was a kid. Like during one of the, uh, the initial scenes where, where, um, Titanosaurus is, they're attacking the city and Titanosaurus is being fired on. And you can see all of the squibs up and down Titanosaurus's neck. Oh, before they go off. Before they go off. And it's, they're very obvious. And they look like, like jujubes or something stuck to the side of his neck. They're, they're, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 
profoundly sloppy. And sure. you know, this, this, uh, you know, seeing it big and everything like this, it's, you know, it's obvious. Uh, a lot of those flaws really just kind of pop out, which could be, you know, part of the fun, you know, of watching a, a rubber suit movie from the seventies. Um, you can't take it too seriously. That's not really fair. You know, the last time we covered this, that was sort of one of the things that we said is that watching the dubbed version of this movie kind of made it a little more fun, a little more campy, and yeah. thus a little more entertaining. Extremely campy. I mean, I don't think it's as campy as some of the previous Showa movies. Like, which one's the one where, is it, uh, which one's the one where uh, Godzilla and Angulus start talking? Is that Gigan? Gigan, yeah. Gigan, yeah. Yeah, and just just know, a couple of years before this. Yeah, just though. just yeah. a few, just campy as and you know Jet Jaguar and and the 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 Megalon uh, Mew Empire guy with his with his toga and with his toga. Burns. Yes, absolutely, her. dude. I you know, I understand like, what you're saying. This whole this whole uh, era is just it's you know it's campy AF. So. This one's less campy, though. That's it what is. you're saying, it's right? It's less. Yeah, less campy it's, than yes, those. Yes, but uh, uh, still still pretty campy. Especially with Dr. Mifune. That's, I sort yeah. of have, that's sort of my biggest issue. I think I said this earlier in the episode, is that you know you have this one actor, Akihiko Hirata, who in the 1954 film portrayed Dr. Serizawa, and he had this sort of tortured soul scientist. And here in this movie, he plays a caricature oh, absolutely. of a mad scientist. And even watching the Japanese version, you know, if you watch the dub, it's like, well, maybe maybe the dub actor is overdoing that. Yeah, he, <laughs> But then you watch the Japanese no, one, no. Yeah, no, no he's, he's chewing the scenery like it's got yeah. ketchup on it. Uh, uh, man, I am on such the opposite end from you guys. <laughs> really? Really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, I'll, I'll, I want to hear all about it, though. Let me let me start at the beginning. Um, seeing it on the big screen, um, on a much larger screen, in, in case your listeners aren't aware, a much larger screen than most of us have in our houses. It's um, quite large. Uh, there is no diminish, diminishing the special effects by seeing it larger for me, because I do not watch these classic Godzilla movies for their tremendous special effects. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, I'm still watching them well and we'll never stop watching them, uh, probably through the, at least these classic ones through the eyes of, of, uh, when I was a kid. So, oh, what uh, a gift. so there's no, there's no like, oh, you know, that's just a guy in a rubber suit. Um, it's always for me, uh, still Mechagodzilla, Titanosaurus and Godzilla, and they always look pretty spectacular. Um, beyond that, I actually don't find this one terribly campy at all. Uh, this one oh. is like one of the darkest ones uh, compared to like King Kong versus Godzilla or certainly the, the Gigan and Jet Jaguar era and stuff like that. Uh, this movie doesn't have any, um, comic relief characters in it. Definitely not. Um, That's everybody is taking That's it very seriously. Point. Um, then there is, uh, I, I forget the name of the actor who plays Mafuni. Um, who was Hirata. Hirata. So Hirata's character in this one, um, in the same way that, uh, the, that Terror of Mechagodzilla continues to set up a mechanization versus organic, uh, contrast through the, his daughter and through the, the cyborgification mm -hmm. of her and the main point, um, uh, related in the script of her retaining her humanity in spite of that. Um, and of course, the obvious parallels between Godzilla and Mechagodzilla. I, I would say that Harada's character, 
um, like the movie as a whole in some ways, uh, echoes back to that first Godzilla movie and turns it on its head. Because his character uh, in the first Godzilla movie is almost messianic in his willingness to sacrifice himself for all of humanity in a selfless way. Whereas this is a character who, with the exception of his daughter, is willing to sacrifice all of humanity uh, just for his own revenge. Um, it is it is a polar opposite of that. So I, I actually find this movie to have a, a, a much greater gravity than many, and most probably any other movie from the 70s. Well, I am I, never going to say another <laughs> word on this podcast. No, hang on a second. You're absolutely, I Damn. completely agree <laughs> that in terms of movies from the 70s, this one is definitely the most like somber and intense and like just not happy, not fun. Actually, that's not true. There's a lot of fun to be had in this movie, but it's not because of necessarily the human actors. Um, okay. Even, even the monster fights, you see, that's the other thing. And, and I would compare this in some way to like, uh, uh, Hidora got smog monster insofar as you could be having some serious, uh, scenes and some serious monster fighting and then some ridiculous monsters throwing each other around with like wires and, and like Titanosaurus picking up Godzilla by his head. And that kind of kills the spell a little bit. Um, but just a little bit, just a little bit. But uh, but there's still, a, uh, I think, just a, a pretty great gravity. That said, the other thing about this is that we are at this point in the series, of course, at the end of the Showa era, um, firmly entrenched in Godzilla's role in the movie is to simply to show up out of nowhere and, and save the day. And defend the earth, yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely the hero of the day, yeah. And, and, and again, um, a flipping against the original Godzilla movie, it is... It is effectively Mechagodzilla who takes on the Godzilla role in this regard. And, and not only is Mechagodzilla, as opposed to being a creation of man's folly, or, or I mean, uh, right, whereas Godzilla was a creation of man's folly through experimentation with science, Mechagodzilla is an intentional creation. Um, and Godzilla's role, of course, is t- simply to show up and, and be the good guy. Um, once you buy that Godzilla is, has lost the fearsomeness that we associated with him in his earlier movies that they have, of course, attempted to recapture in some of the more recent ones, that falls to Mechagodzilla. So I'm, I think it's great that this movie isn't Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla or Godzilla fights again. This movie, Godzilla's name is only appearing in the title as it is embedded in Mechagodzilla. In many ways, thematically, the movie is a Mechagodzilla movie. He is the villain, he is the focus, he is the terror, and mechanization and inhumanization is the the real threat and, and theme of the whole movie. Adam, I'd like to, you to take maybe just a couple minutes to think about what you're <laughs> saying here. I mean, it's so ludicrous now. You know, that, I was, I'm not 100% sure that I saw that. The, um, I mean, everything up to, I mean, everything up to the point where you said that the, um, where it was more about Mechagodzilla, I actually felt more of an emotional connection to Titanosaurus than to Mechagodzilla. That Titanosaurus was sort of a victim. Yeah, because he's uh, you know, being be, forced. Being, to being forced, you know, there's a number of times where they're talking about his gentle nature and everything. And even once the control he was he was able to slough off the control because of the supersonic gun or mm-hmm. you know you know whatever um he wakes up out of his trance and godzilla kicks the crap out of him 
And so I just, I just felt bad for this poor creature that was perfectly happy at the bottom of the ocean, you know, until these scientists and aliens drag him up to be a part of their evil machinations. Mm -hmm. And they just, you know, and, and all he gets for it is in another movie, he would have come out of it and he and Godzilla would have teamed up yes. to kill Mechagodzilla. Yes. It's surprising that they actually didn't do that. Right? I'm, I'm very surprised by so. that. I'm actually, because you look at all the Showa movies prior to this, there are team-ups galore. You know, whether it's Jet Jaguar or Angelus yes, or... Ever since, uh, yeah, ever since Gigan. Gigan on. Yeah. They're all, they're all team. King Caesar. Mm -hmm. Not this one. You know, and I think that it would have been a more logical perhaps too formulaic even for a shiro honda and you know, tomiyuki tanaka you know i guess i guess so maybe so i don't know if there had been more movies i would not have been surprised if he had been well, i wouldn't have been surprised if he'd stayed a villain but i also wouldn't have surprised if they converted him to uh, uh to one uh, of the more the, the defendery ones yeah, God's, yeah an ally um he is in my opinion that's the other great redeeming thing about this movie i think that uh titanosaurus is the best of the Showa era Hands monsters down. since like Ghidra's introduction. Hmm. Hands down. Uh, he's got an interesting roar. He's tall. He's got uh, a, a, an unusual physicality and a lot of detail a lot, uh, uh, about the head. Mm -hmm. um, and his tail wind weapon is unusual. Also, he's aquatic. And those scenes uh, underwater They're are gorgeous. And they are unique in the in the, the those films. I, I can't think of any, uh, other than the first film. Um, and actually, no. There, there was maybe a little bit in. They, they, they've done some. They've definitely done a lot of underwater photography, fake, uh, you know, underwater photography, a set, right. yeah, you know, kind of stuff. Uh, but I feel like Gamera is underwater more. Than yeah. No, I was just true. talking about like yeah. the the Godzilla, the Showa era Godzilla films. Yeah. One thing that this movie also does that I felt even as a kid was lacking in. Um, in the Showa era movies as they progressed was most of the movies continued to film everything from about the shoulder height of the monsters, effectively diminishing them in scale. Mm -hmm. And this movie is the first one in some time that makes a, a, a repeated consistent effort to film from below to continue to convey uh, uh, an immensity and, and it, it eschews like any kind of speed up or slow down effects with the camera. It, it, chooses that as the way to convey it once again especially also when uh with mecha godzilla when they're repairing him and they have those uh green screen shots yeah of everybody below him and they do a they try and insert a lot of detail with the sparks to oh yeah convey. absolutely yeah um this this movie for me as a kid um was one of the gravest and 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 ones that returned all of these characters to a, an immense monstrous status interesting see i I did not watch this movie as a kid. I think we've probably oh. actually talked oh, about really? this before on okay. the podcast. Like, this is a movie that came... So first up, my Godzilla movies as a kid began at age 13. I never saw anything before that except oh, wow. Rodan. And so watching the movies, and there was a big gap between seeing my first Godzilla movie and seeing a whole bunch of other ones. I don't even remember how long it was before I actually started seeing some of the classics. But... Terror of Mechagodzilla. When it was released in America, it was called Terror of Godzilla. The poster actually showed Godzilla, Mechagodzilla, and King Caesar on it. So really? it I've completely confusing, right? So one of the VHS tapes I had 
was Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. And then I went to go buy Terror of Mechagodzilla, but it actually had a different picture of King Caesar and uh, and Mechagodzilla and Godzilla on it. And so I did not buy it. Huh. And then later on, much, I mean, seriously, much later on, I found out that it actually was a second movie and I had to go buy a different VHS tape, I think. But uh, when this came out from classic media on DVD, that's like the first time I really sat down and checked it out because the other copy I had was so garbage. Sure. No, I remember being confused about the two films following each other a lot, probably into my 30s. Before I realized, oh, wait, these are two different movies. That's why I'm remembering all these different scenes. Well, my experience of this was so different. Um, I mean, I was born in 1975. Yeah. The Godzilla movies were being turned around uh, about a, uh, a few years after release to be shown on American television. Mm-hmm. Um, this was an era when growing up, we still, uh, I was watching these on small black and white television sets, uh, that, uh, you had, you know, of course, for your, you young kids out there, you had to get up and like <laughs> sometimes tune them in on UHF. And I would, uh, wake up on, say, a Saturday morning, get the local paper, get the TV insert, go through and find all the instances. Yep. of any Godzilla movie or monster mm-hmm. movie that was happening over the weekend. So it was even years before I realized that some of these movies were actually in color and some of them, no, even on a color set were still black and white. Um, <laughs> but uh, for, for me then, it was when I was about like five or six and really getting into Godzilla uh, to a, a, a tremendous degree. Um, this was one of the freshest movies um, sure. that was being shown on television and all of them were being shown at some point or another. I remember there's no Showa era movie that I don't remember watching on television at some point. Interesting. Um, but this one was particularly vivid and also it doesn't hurt that there, it's, it's the one of the bloodiest. True. Yeah. Yeah. I feel I, that was just definitely something that happens in the seventies movies for sure. As a kid, did you like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was also a big fan of robots and especially the Transformers when they came out. So having a Godzilla that was a robot Godzilla was, I just, I literally couldn't think of anything cooler. Ah, that's awesome, man. Yeah, I do not have that experience at all, unfortunately. <laughs> so you watch this like much later as an adult? Much later as an adult, yeah. Well, that's almost it, a shame. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have any nostalgia for the 70s movies. Aww. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's okay. I've found in doing the show and in being a fan, I've found many, many, many reasons to love the movies from the 70s. You know, I think... My tone's changed quite a bit, actually. This, I think this, this conversation is kind of taking me back. I think the first Godzilla movie I ever saw on television was Godzilla's Revenge. And yet I watched another Godzilla movie after that. <laughs> it didn't dissuade you. No, I don't think it did. I, I think, think you true. probably identified with each hero <laughs> real hard. That must be it. <laughs> that, that's, that's kind of amazing to me because so much of my uh, Godzilla love is founded on that nostalgia. Mm. On that like weekend after weekend after oh, weekend. Oh, sure. Uh, and, and here I was in like in kindergarten uh, – Every week I was doing Godzilla drawings. I was coming out with my own Godzilla adventures. I had Godzilla merchandise like crazy. Um, wow. So uh, so while I, with modern Godzilla movies, judge them more as an adult, and that is why, if, if anything, past the Showa era or maybe even like Godzilla 1984, 1985, that, uh, that with the exception maybe of, of GMK, 
um, that that uh, Shin Godzilla is like my favorite Godzilla of my adult years and adult life. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing can diminish the enjoyment I have for all of these Showa era ones because they're they're I cannot watch them without seeing them through the eyes of like a five, six, seven, eight year old. So that's that's interesting that you say that because as I said, my first Godzilla movie was thirteen, and that was Godzilla nineteen eighty five, mm-hmm. which I have watched as an adult. Specifically, the American cut, right? I can watch the Japanese version, and I'll like, I'll trash it. I'm like, this is, uh, this is slow. This is plotting. They should speed this up a little bit more. Why are they doing that? You know, but put on the American one. I'll shut up and just enjoy the <laughs> hell out of it. And I think it's because of that nostalgia. Um, I actually find weirdly that the Godzilla movies have pretty much aged with me in that regard because when Godzilla 1985 came out in America I was mm-hmm. 10 years old and I was at that point ready for a more mature Godzilla so the pace of that one the improved special effects the gravity of it that harkened essentially back to the very first film um, was where I was at when the later 90s movies were happening and and uh, and the millennial ones and now I'm in my 20s and 30s and I'm thinking ah, this is geared for a younger audience this isn't hitting me very hard mm-hmm. But then Shin Godzilla comes out and I'm like, wow, this is like if uh, Aaron Sorkin or David Mamet wrote a Godzilla movie, <laughs> yeah. which is exactly what I want right <laughs> yeah. now, minus the American movies, which... Yeah, I just did, I wish I had that old school nostalgia for them. But uh, I love that the... I mean, obviously, I love the different perspectives we get on the show of that stuff. Adam, if you had to name one thing that is your favorite aspect of Terror of Mechagodzilla... Could you even do that? Hmm. I like that it rather organically comes, with the exception of Godzilla just kind of showing up, it organically builds to Mechagodzilla and Titanosaurus versus Godzilla. It is uh, pretty much the greatest odds that the Showa-era Godzilla had to face uh, in terms of fighting two extremely formidable monsters. And that the humans um, are... Not even far from being annoying. Actually, you're kind of rooting for them, and there's a compelling story there. So there's a teamwork going yeah. on for sure. So that when by the time it builds up to that final fight, uh, the stakes seem high. You're invested in it, and it's gory. Um, you've still got like the the impersonal. Uh, you've got the Titanosaurus, which you want to root for as soon as he's out of control. You've got Mechagodzilla, mm-hmm. who is just compellingly evil and mechanical. Right. And at the same time, you get to root for Godzilla. So at the end, I guess the best thing is that it all slow burns and builds towards exactly what I want in a Godzilla movie, which is a high stakes giant monster fight. Fantastic. Well, I'm just going to close the podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> Dave? I'm certainly not going to be that eloquent. But um, You want to make with the funny? Uh, <laughs> um, one of the things, for me, there's there's a very, very much a, a very specific thing I can point to, and that's Titanosaurus. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like, I've, anybody who's heard me on the podcast before knows how I go on and on about character design and blah, blah, blah. Uh, the thing that I like about Titanosaurus over most of the other monsters of the previous 10 years in the films, um, he's a dinosaur again. Like you've got Hedra. It's like, okay, Hedra is like a giant pile of sledge. You got Gigan. 
A giant robot chicken buzzsaw monster. Okay, whatever. You got Megalon. Yeah, I know. I I hate hate that guy. (laughs) Man, I just hate him. And, you know, then you got Megalon. It's like, okay, giant beetle cyborg drill thing, you know, just going, you know, King Caesar, blah, 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 blah. You're missing all of them. You got a dinosaur again. We're back to dragons fighting. Mm -hmm. That is what I always love. That's why I love Destroy All Monsters. So much as you've got these sort of classic designs all together. You've got Ghidorah as the, the main focus. And then you have everybody, even the cameo by Varan. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all dinosaurs. They're all dragons. They're all reptilian. They're all, they have this commonality mm-hmm. where the proliferation of them makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to say Gigan, which makes no sense to me. Sure. The, uh, and the return to this Titanosaurus, I loved that after missing it for so long. Um, seeing these other movies up till now and getting progressively more disillusioned with where Godzilla's co-stars were going. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, one of the things about seeing this here today on the big screen, I actually like Mechagodzilla, the original Mechagodzilla design a lot more than I liked it when I was a kid. Uh, and I think that scene that uh, Adam was talking about, the sort of scaffolding scene with the little, uh, you know, welding flares and everything like that, it sort of, you know, added to this gigantic uh, menace of him. And the design is sort of reminiscent, uh, shares a similar aesthetic a little bit with Mecha Kong, who is absolutely one of my favorite rubber mm-hmm. suits of all time. I mean, it just... Hilarious and wonderful and, uh, oh my, like one of my dream scenarios is Mechagodzilla versus Mechacong. I mean, that would just be so great. Oh, you know? I know there's fan art out there. <laughs> oh my God. I know there's fan art out oh, there. Oh yeah, there has to be. But, um, to, to come back to this, to Titanosaurus, whose abilities are mostly natural. You know, he doesn't, he can't put his hands together and make a drill. He can't, you know, do anything like that. He's got a tail. He's got big, thick leg muscles so he can jump and kick. Uh, like, you know, like Gorosaurus. Uh, the, he's, he's an animal. And I love that. Yeah. I, lo- I love the return to that. And I appreciate how they attempted to break the human silhouette a little bit with that long neck and that tiny mm-hmm. head. Mm. I think it's, I think it's cool. I think that obviously the suit falls down a little bit when you watch some of the slow motion scenes and his neck fall folds in half above where the actor's head is, Mm -hmm. which is unfortunate, but you know, it's just sort of the, you know, the nature of the, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) That was a painful scene for that monster. But I love, but I mean, but I, I just, and I'm, as I mentioned while we were watching it, I'm, I'm disappointed that we've never seen Titanosaurus again in another Mm -hmm. movie. I love that character. You mentioned the the Godzilla design, liking it more. Do you do you have a preference as far as um, the the original Mechagodzilla versus uh, Kiryu? Yes, um, or the millennial films. Um, no. You know, I think I think fifteen years ago. How, how long ago did uh, did uh, the, the second Mechagodzilla make its debut? I'm not ninety three. Ninety three. So so okay. So quite a while ago, like like twenty five years ago. I think I think 20 years ago I probably would have gone with the slicker you know the 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 more refined Kiryu Mechagodzilla um but that 
that it really sort of goes counter to everything else about my aesthetic. You know, I love vintage things. I love classic cars. I love, uh, you know, and this, this 1970s design of Mechagodzilla is really charming, you know, in the end. Very evil. And Andy and evil. And evil. Like yes. <laughs> and well, Kiryu's not really, Kiryu's not really evil. Kiryu's probably designed to be a little bit more sympathetic. Yeah. The, I classify the designs like show Mechagodzilla's badass. Heisei Mechagodzilla is boring and Millennium Mechagodzilla is just kind of cool. Right. Like he's got a cool exoskeleton, but yeah. like nothing is, nothing is as cool as the Showa era. Yeah. Mechagodzilla. I think, I think as the years Thank have you. gone along, I think I've gone, I think I've come back to appreciating the original Mechagodzilla uh, and the design of it more. I especially love the scene in this movie where Titanosaurus and Mechagodzilla are descending on the city and you see Mechagodzilla sort of slowly hovering in the background yeah, while, yeah. while while Titanosaurus is in the foreground. And I'm like, oh, that's a tough tag team. Another uh, directorial cinematography the choice that this movie makes that I don't recall from many others is uh, as, as stereotypical and or cheesy as the standoff pre-fight standoff is that the, the camera is like slowly panning around mm-hmm. to to really convey the odds of like well there's godzilla and then there's these two others and it's only you know him there's a couple shots of that that i just really enjoy uh, amongst the cityscape that can, once again gives it scale that yeah. i felt had been lacking yeah and motion too a lot of the camera angles that you got in the earlier show era movies were all static. Mm. I mean, they cut between different camera angles, obviously, but not a lot of movement for the tokusatsu stuff, the special effects work. This movie had a lot of that. And uh, I think the scene you're talking about, I think, is like where they had it on like a dolly on a track, right? Yeah. And they kind of went around the monsters. Mm-hmm. Yes, gorgeous work. Actually, my favorite aspect of this movie uh, is sort of, I want to say it's a toss up between the actual special effects work because I really do love. Terry Yoshinakuno's special effects work in this is like really great. And that sort of includes the suits. What do you, like a little the, bit. yeah, specifically, what are you talking about? Cause I'm not sure I agree. All the explosions. Okay. You don't love the explosions? No, the, some of the explosions were good with the exception of the very obvious squibs that were on the costumes. Sure. Picky, picky. Yeah. But like the, yeah, like the oh, scene no, where Mechagodzilla I, fires his finger guilty. missiles into the ground oh, yeah. and like the whole street erupts. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. Wow. And we were talking about like how, how often the Godzilla suit was actually on fire during mm-hmm. this movie. You know, it was pretty, pretty impressive. But the other thing I do actually really love about this movie is the story itself. Mm-hmm. Like, I may have some issues with the film and the way it was directed or the way it was edited or the way the sound design happened or any number of (laughs) issues with it. But the actual story of this is very, very compelling. And I don't often push a movie into the status of, I'd like to see your remake of this, or I'd like to see a tighter version of this, maybe a modern version of it. All right. I could see... I could see that. I'm not going to say that I would want somebody to remake Terror of Mechagodzilla. That's stupid. But just... <laughs> you just made somebody out there cry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jim. But the pro- the problem is, like, I don't... It just doesn't make sense to just do a remake of that particular movie. But taking the concepts from that movie, which do seem very Ishiro Honda film-esque... You know, you've got the conflicts of the characters. You've almost got that sort of old school versus new school 
you know, where he's got the the old guard reluctantly giving way to the new guard. It has these elements in the film which say that it's an Ashiro Honda film, and that's sort of like Absolutely. the thing I love the most about it, I guess. Yeah. So that kind of is a nice segue when we're talking about the return of the original director to the return of the original composer. Yes, Akira Ifukabe, for those who do not know who we're talking about. Yes, um, who, uh, of course, it's hard to top a lot of the original themes that he introduced in the very first movie. Um, they're just tremendous, and there's every reason that those themes should have continued through the 60s and 70s. Um, and he occasionally introduced others that were uh, just as iconic, uh, pretty much the theme that follows uh, the introduction of, of Ghidra, which is uh, a pretty compelling theme. I don't know if, which, if you like know which one I'm talking about, but it's like these... I know the theme of you Ghidra, know yes. Thing. The, the <laughs> screaming horn, um, it's actually pretty inspired. It's all of these moving, diminished chords, and um, it's... Uh, it's It's dramatic and different than what came before while still in character. But of course, as we know, uh, uh, he was doing, uh, Ifukube was doing fewer of the Godzilla movies as time went on. And one wouldn't have been too surprised if he had come into this movie, which he hadn't done one in a while, and just recycled a bunch of what had come before. Mm -hmm. um, but he didn't. He, the, the, a lot of the themes that he introduced in this movie, especially the main theme around Mechagodzilla is not only fresh, um, but also, has a completely different feel than anything that he had conjured up before. Um, the it, it, it's reminiscent of Taxi Driver in terms of these um, kind of mournful horns uh, that then overblow. Um, you've got increased use of organ throughout the entire thing. He's still interspersing his. Uh, that was pretty. That was a pretty seventies thing. Though, it was. It? Yeah, it was. But the, you know, Fukube was a classically trained guy who tended to stick to a, a, a much more conservative repertoire. Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, his his a lot of stuff was like marches and string quartets mm. that like th this he kind did of experiment a lot though throughout the Showa era for sure like even as far back as sixty four with Mothra versus Godzilla mm -hmm. you know he used a I think he used some kind of electronic instrument I'm sorry I don't know the name of it but as part of the soundtrack he would uh, like in Mothra's sound too right like, like that the was theremin. Was it the theremin you're talking yeah, about? No, I know the theremin. It was more of a, like, I think it might have been something with keys, like a percussive instrument. Anyway. He had vibraphone in there that he I was think, using. Yeah, the vibraphone yeah. is what I was just um, but, but yeah, he experimented a lot with stuff like yes. that in the in the show era. But but the, I just, I the, the, the soundtrack for this particular movie, I'm a, I'm a particularly big fan of. Um, it just, it has, a, it has a nuance and it has, it, it's not bombastic. Um, it has a, a slow burn gravity to it. It's menacing. Yeah, it's definitely big and booming, but not bombastic. That's a good way to put that because it's dread inspiring. Yes, almost right. That the the slow build, and especially with the electric part, the sort of mm. like coming into it. I love that. Actually, the soundtrack overall, I really like his use of the organ mm -hmm. and it gets a little much for me sometimes <laughs> but oh, really? uh, yeah okay. i watched this with the headphones on the other day and i there were some scenes where i was like what is going on here if Bay? but 
I think that it's possible that he was trying to conjure up the same feel of these uh, the 30s, 40s, and 50s Universal Monsters kind of movies. Interesting. Um, that he was he was intentionally evoking something that was, as you put it, more dread than um, militaristic or or high energy. Definitely a huge, huge shift from the previous five films. Yeah. Did we hear any of those themes come back later on when Ifukube came back for the Heisei era? And, Not like, to my knowledge. Godzilla? Man, good stuff, though. Do you want to talk a little bit about the Monster Project and what you guys did with the Terror of Mechagodzilla stuff specifically? If my arm is twisted. But uh, simply to say <laughs> that the Monster Project was a, a, a rock jazz group that was put together to, um, to cover uh, about half an hour 45 minutes worth of godzilla music specifically about a half an hour of ifuku bay um and in surveying all of uh, that music and transcribing it uh, is when i paid more attention of course to all of the soundtracks than i ever had before and and that's where terror of mechagodzilla stood out mm-hmm. um of terror of mechagodzilla i actually ended up taking three pieces uh to include one was the main theme because it's uh it lends itself uh, to so many different kind of interpretive moments. Um, the other was, uh, for its uniqueness, the, uh, the Dr. Mafuni's past, which is the solo organ thing that plays over the flashback scene. Again, unusual in the Godzilla repertoire. For sure. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, uh, that we actually concluded that like monster project, uh, uh, Ifuku based suite with the final piece of music from this film, which uh, is just called ending. Um, but it's that, uh, it's that extremely slow and somewhat mournful, but also somewhat optimistic and, um, certainly like resigned, but in a positive way, uh, exit the, the Godzilla out on the water. Um, of course he, he wouldn't have known this when he composed it, but, uh, in retrospect, we're aware that this would then be the final film of the Showa era. So that ending piece ends up serving not just as the ending of this particular movie, but of that entire very fitting multi-decade grouping of, of movies. And, uh, and I think that it's a very fitting and, uh, and powerful cap at the end of them. Really amazing score. Yeah. And uh, the fact that Tanaka was able to bring back Honda and get Ifukube back for this sort of what essentially was the final Godzilla film, at least at the time, you know, mm. as far as they knew. It makes the movie more worthwhile to me, at least, for sure. You would know this better than us, probably, but like how how certain or did they have any idea this would be the final one for some years? Okay, so the um the writing was on the wall. The writing was definitely on the wall I knew and that the ticket sales the were... ticket sales were in the, you know, gutter for this one. Uh 98,000 I believe or man, some maybe 980,000. It, it was a heck of a lot less. Than it was the least yeah. it was the worst selling Godzilla movie in Japan. So, uh they probably knew that this was the last one, but this was not the last attempt to get a Godzilla movie made. Mm. But this was not the first time that Toho had said, all right, here we go. Finale coming up. <laughs> you know, they did that with Destroy All Monsters. Mm-hmm. And then they earned enough money that they were like, well, maybe this cash cow can get milked a little bit longer. And then they went through the 70s. Well, let's talk about 
things that actually, Adam, if you want to just bow out of this part, you can. Is there <laughs> anything you don't like about this film? <laughs> Come back to me. Okay. Dave. The aliens' helmets. Oh, I can't God. take. I can't take. Them, I, no, seriously, I can't take them seriously. I can't take them seriously because they've got these weird antenna fish heads on these silver thing. It's they're like you. I I completely agree with everything that Adam was saying about the sense of menace and the and the real uh, the threat that the like you were talking about the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the the threat that the Earth is under by even though it is even though. Uh, alien race controls other monster that Godzilla saves us from is a very common theme in a lot of these show era movies and beyond. I, I couldn't take these guys seriously because of the damn helmets. They were so goofy and removed. They were on the subject of the, how this movie had no comic relief. It's like, I'm laughing at their headgear. <laughs> and, you know, especially the, the handlebar helmets, the yes. handlebar helmets yeah. and the, and the, you know, the, how the, the, the lead alien had those fish eyes on top of it. And that didn't help any. And they were just, there was so much about this as we were talking about with the design of Titanosaurus and the design of Mechagodzilla that worked. Mm-hmm. They really screwed the pooch with the helmets, even, you know, just a different helmet. They could have kept the silver suit, Katsura's, Sparkly silver cat suit, boom, love it, spot on. But you know, and the other guys could have kept their, you know, their silver jumpsuits going on. Just, I mean, like, look at how cool the the uh, the Exians looked in Monster Zero. You know, I mean, just just a simple, even with the single, the ridiculous single antenna sticking out of the top of their head. They sure, great with those those. Those visors. I have to toss that back to the budgetary committee for this movie for sure. (laughs) Like at this point, are these were they like left over from an episode of Common Rider? It would not surprise me if it was left over from something. Yeah, you know, they basically took different, uh, different props from previous films and augmented and stripped away to create other. Like okay, so the gun, right? The gun that the aliens use in this. Yes, I want to say had been previously used in Destroy All Monsters oh, and then sure. had also been previously used in Monster Zero. I think the Destroy All Monsters guns were different. They might be. I'm I don't just know saying why I think I, I've I seen that, but, uh, some of these props get yeah. they absolutely get of hacked course. away and built up on. Yeah, no so that happens all I wouldn't it wouldn't shock me at all if someone said that those alien suits were the same thing that they used in Battle in outer space, yes. but then they took off the Greeblies. There's something, you know, there's there's something like that. I mean, this is a very common studio thing. If you watch the Hammer movies, which I've watched a ton of, it's like you see these props being reused over and over and over again. Erwin sure. Erwin Allen was notorious for doing that. Sure. You know? Plus anything else that they build is gonna have to in the 70s is gonna have to have been done on the cheap. Oh, for sure. Yeah, so it's like they didn't have yeah, especially, 60s money. Yeah, especially with the ticket sales dropping from movie to movie to movie. Yeah, so I'm not super surprised. But actually, did you know that Toho actually split into two different companies, and they basically had a TV company? And I the did not know that TV company took over the special effects for everything. Really? <laughs> and so the once mighty Toho special effects department, helmed by Eiji Tsuburaya. Once Eiji Tsuburaya died, slowly shrank and shriveled into the Toho Ezo. Interesting. 
when was the six million dollar man on TV and the bionic woman? No, oh, because of the uh, because of the chicka 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 chicka. Yeah, you know, it's like well that and also just Katsura being a robot. Seventy three. Okay, so this is just prior to uh, this came out in Japan in seventy five, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I mean, I uh, I think we've we've picked up on this before where uh, other. Uh, popular cultural phenomenon get folded into mm-hmm. little themes Planet in the movie. Of the apes. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, the, um, you know, I'm wondering if, if the popularity of bionics and cyborgs and the six million dollar man and the bionic woman influence putting Katsura in the film and stuff like that as a robot, as a cyborg. Potentially. I would think so. I mean, it definitely. Okay, so uh, I'm not saying no by any stretch of the imagination. However, the only uh, potential argument I would give would be that this is from a student. Yukiko Takayama was a student who was taking screenwriting classes. And I would say that that would be a Toho trick, an old hat, hey... This is popular over in America. Let's do it in our movies For sure. as opposed to it just being some fresh kid just out of school right. with a big head, big ideas. But I don't know. Yeah. I wasn't there. I'm, but, I'm spitballing here. It does remind me that like I really love the uh, interior of, of her with like the circuit board and the beating heart. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's so good. <laughs> and it's a very classic trope for tokusatsu heroes like Kamen Rider. Yeah, to have yeah. The, to have like the clockwork mechanism. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Kikaida especially. So I'm trying to think of like negative things about this movie. And, <laughs> and um, I certainly can't. Cannot deny the helmets, even if <laughs> even if they were reused from a previous movie, then that previous movie should should feel ashamed of oh, those absolutely. helmets. But as, as I'm thinking about it, um, I guess the one thing that even as a kid was a, a complex thing for me was my great love of when Godzilla was a menace, versus also my vicarious enjoyment when he was a hero. Um, because as a, as a kid, Godzilla coming to save the day has a great amount of appeal, just as much as a giant monster coming to destroy the city has a, a lot of appeal, at least for me. Um, so in the same way that I really enjoy Freddy versus Jason in terms of <laughs> let's just, let, why, why can't they both be evil and then attack each other and I take lo- all my money? I love Freddy versus Jason. I'm one, it's like, you're one of the only other people I've ever met who actually likes that movie. Um, I wouldn't have minded if Godzilla was a menace who then stumbles upon these other monsters and has a fight. But but those days, uh, I, I don't. That isn't a big thing. And those days had obviously sailed because the entire premise of this movie pretty much hinges upon. So last time we tried to conquer the Earth, and uh, Godzilla came and stopped us, and we're just operating under the assumption that he's going to do so again. But this time we have two monsters. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a good move. I mean, it's, I, I, I've often wondered why how like these, how like in comic books and everything like that, supervillains will come up with an idea and there's like this great idea to take over the earth and, uh, and, and they get stopped once and they're like, okay, well that idea was bad. It's like, no, try again. Fix the idea. You know, <laughs> it's like, I, you know, it's Fine like, tune the, that, please. the, the one monster to two monsters is a very logical step for the, 
world con- world conquering aliens. To agile, take. I applaud them. An agile, iterative methodology about I, like you know world domination. You know, like it's just escalation. You guys, first there's one monster, <laughs> then there's two monsters, I, and then the, and you that, counter two monsters with another three sense. monsters. That makes sense. But beyond that, um, it's really hard to think of things I don't like. I mean, even the title, Terror of Mechagodzilla. That's well, awesome. What is not to love about the title? I would never complain about the title of this film. Um, oh, and and just in case you're you're uh, for the benefit of your listeners, could you explain the whole thing of like Godzilla raids again and terror of Mechagodzilla and the Japanese relation of the titles? Sure. Yeah. So the first Godzilla movie, uh, or sorry, the first sequel, Godzilla raids again, is actually known as Godzilla's counterattack or Gojira no Gyakushu. That's the 1955 film, the first sequel to a Godzilla film. So the first sequel to a Mechagodzilla film is actually Mechagodzilla no Gyakushu, Mechagodzilla's counterattack. And that little bit of like of parody there it, it no, is, good. Is, is excellent to me. It's almost like that's what they gave the nerds in 1975, <laughs> right? <laughs> Here's your deep cut. Is, yeah. This one goes all the way back throw to 1955. Bo- throw those boys a bone. Yeah. And if they had called it uh, Mechagodzilla Raids Again, that would have also been awesome. If they had, unfortunately, like they did with Terror of Mechagodzilla, shortened it on VHS to Terror of Godzilla, and then it was just Godzilla Raids Again, and there were two movies called that, that would have been terrible. <laughs> but it's probably better than having a movie called Godzilla's Counterattack, which would not have sold as well. I don't no. Think. I, I really do like Mechagodzilla's Counterattack. That's pretty cool. Or yeah. Mechagodzilla Raids Again. But uh, yeah, Terror of Mechagodzilla is is has always been to me an extremely compelling title, and and kind of sums up the movie in some ways. Nice. Do you feel like that should have been the last Godzilla movie? Uh, I don't think that I could say so. With I mean, I assume you mean of the Showa era. No, I mean like uh, d- like uh, just in this alternate reality. If that had been the final Godzilla movie ever. Oh, no. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because, no. because, um, I, I, I mean, like I said, I love Godzilla 1985 and there's, uh, various ones throughout the intervening decades that I really enjoy. And then, um, and then a Shin Godzilla, which is, uh, one of the more realistic takes on, on mm. this whole thing. Um, and very much a slow burn. I, I love the concept of the giant monster coming to destroy with almost zero motivation. Uh, and I love humanity's, uh, watching humanity deal with that. Specifically the Japanese, it so happens. Um, so, so I look forward to even more iterations down the line mm-hmm. uh, of that. And I would hate to have missed out on those Godzilla movies of the, the recent years that I really enjoy simply to have had this as a bookend. Um, but, I don't know that I would have needed another Godzilla versus Megalon or, you know, oh, God, no. <laughs> right. uh, in the intervening years. That, that said, as you know, I'm a big fan of, of, and I'm going to stick with this title, Godzilla versus the Smog Monster. Um, so, so who knows what, what could have happened? Um, but, but no, I'm glad things continue to evolve. Right on, right on. I'm going to use that as your uh, final thoughts there. Sure. Is that cool? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, we've actually been recording for like almost an hour. Oh my God, really? Yeah. Oh, Dave was I... all like, how are we going to pad this out with yeah. all <laughs> 
Adam. Adam's how we're going <laughs> to do no, that. It's, like, it's good stuff. And actually, the other thing that, that – one of the things that Adam said a moment ago about sort of the conflict of Godzilla the hero versus Godzilla the monster, um, I think that the reason I like the Showa-era Gamera movies – I'm sorry, the Heisei-era Gamera movies uh, so much is that they resolved that perfectly – in my opinion, um, where Gamera is, okay, quote, defender of the earth, unquote, but he's really just marking his territory and people just happen to live in his territory. Yeah. He's the, he's the guardian of the earth or defender of the earth, not the defender of humanity, not the defender of humanity. Humanity gets the, but gets the happy, the happy coincidence. Humanity gets to keep on living because Gamera's around there. The, People that Gamera steps on while he's defending the earth don't get to keep on living, but everybody else does. Mm -hmm. And I think that that really made a lot of sense. One of the reasons why, like, like I said, the main reason why I love the, the, that era of Gamera movies so much. And I think it was, I think they, unless I just wasn't paying attention, I think they hit that balance before Godzilla did. Okay. If tell me I'm wrong, I don't, well, I, I'm not really. The the, the, tr- the transition for Godzilla was was Ghidra, uh, the three headed monster, wherein they specifically are like they just want to fight each other, but then they're somehow convinced by uh, to 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 take that fighting of each other and channel it towards fighting an even greater evil. And and then it just kind of I don't want to say it went downhill from there. No, I think, but I think downhill from there is exactly the right way of describing it. But 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 like God. But then you still had that kind of thing. Like why does Godzilla show up? Does Godzilla show up because uh, in these later movies because he's defending Tokyo, or is he showing up simply because it's like, hey, this is my turf. It's not explicit. Of course, there is that scene in this movie With where the, the little kids, the little yep, kids are I about know, to be stepped on, and, and that's when Godzilla <laughs> chooses to intervene. And it's difficult to interpret that in any way and other than no other way than Godzilla is the defender of children. Um, but but <laughs> that was a little slippery right slope. There. There. Business yeah. decisions on a film studio's part. But there was at least, as I remember, as a kid watching these and seeing the gamut of Godzilla as villain. Again, like as a kid, you know, watching these from like 19, uh, when I was born in 75. So I was watching them from like 79 through like 84, uh, when the, um, uh, right about when the, the, the reboot movie came out. Um, they were all smashed together. So I was seeing them all out of war sequence for and sure all the time. And I was aware that, you know, sometimes Godzilla's a villain. Sometimes he's just a pure straight up hero. Um, but that kept his motivation somewhat vague. And, and they never did, you know, say he's, you know, the hero of Tokyo. They never say he's the hero of children. They just kind of are glad when he shows up. <laughs> yeah. And that, when I, when I was younger, I was never able to reconcile that. I thought that it was, it was strange how in the first Godzilla, he kills everybody. And less than a generation later, people are happy to see him show up again. It's a very forgiving country. Yeah, I guess so. They're a, they're a very forgiving people, the Japanese. <laughs> like, yeah. Sure. I yeah. Got, yeah. But uh, no, I'm, it's, I'm with you there, man. The, the, it's just literally sign of the times, I right? Guess. Like, you follow the trends, and that's what was happening in Japan. So in 1966, right, that's when Ultraman kicked off. And at the same time, oh, Space Giants kicked off. 
okay, televisions became there. a bigger thing. Right. So, I mean, people in the po- who listen to the podcast have heard, heard me talk about this a little bit before, but basically, the advent of television in Japan signaled the doom of the kaiju film. So, essentially, all of a sudden in 1966, the small screen has your giant monster fix. Mm hmm. 1966 is also the second Gamera movie. So all of a sudden, there's a new studio, not a new studio by any stretch of the means, but there's a studio fighting Toho's, you know, in a sense. That's that's their breadwinner, is Godzilla. And then, so now they're competing with Gamera. And then 1967 comes around, and Nikatsu's like, hey, we'll do a kaiju movie. And Shochiku's like, hey, yeah, we'll do a kaiju movie, too. And so Gamera Adai is like, no, we're doing more kaiju movies. And then, <laughs> so in the 1968, there was the most amount of, uh, 67, I'm sorry, is the most amount of kaiju that were out there at the time. Every single studio, it seems, was doing something. Anyway, after that, there was an just insane drop off. Everything just got less and less, less and less of, uh, attendance in the theaters, mm. more and more kids. And you're saying that's because of TV. That is one of the many theories. Sure, but the, the strongest that is theory. A strong theory. But as far as the the um, the benevolence, the emerging benevolence of Godzilla, uh, it it happens with pretty much any villain that after a certain amount of exposure, uh, they become, if not literally, figuratively defanged, and uh, and and then they're just like an exciting poster thing to enjoy. Yeah, so. I, 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 you're absolutely right. Could they have really kept up like a dozen Godzilla movies where he was no. always the villain? Oh Definitely no, not. no, no, no. I, they no, couldn't no, have even kept true. up a dozen more Godzilla movies if he was the hero. But I, I mean, think. like the ones, yeah. the dozen that, they, that the Showa era that they did, the ones yeah. that they did. Uh, eventually, as soon as you start with the, the the concept of let's introduce more monsters, you 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 have exactly what they did, which is Godzilla was a popular villain, and here's some monsters that we're going to root for. So we're going to make him the villain of this. It's King Kong versus Godzilla and Mothra versus Godzilla. Um, but as soon as you introduce a monster that's even worse, yeah. Uh, it's pro wrestling yeah then Godzilla you know turns from as you know in pro wrestling terms from heel to face from heel to baby face and 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 you really can't come back from that or at least you can't come back from that in any kind in continuity you have to jump ahead to some point where he's uh, retcon time (laughs) (laughs) well then I don't even know where to go from there Adam I think that's a great place for us to wrap up as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you guys so much for being here. Adam, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me back. Dave, as always, yeah, I'm no. glad to have you here too. Thanks, man. Yeah, we did get a lot of homework in from the listeners, so let's hear what they had to say. Mike Keller says he watched both the Japanese and American versions of Terror of Mechagodzilla. Although mostly inaccurate, Mike finds the History of Godzilla segment tacked onto the beginning of the American version to be a nice little clip montage, if nothing else. The Japanese version is worth watching because, well, bubes. Uh, Yeah, they're not real, but neither are half the ones in Hollywood. Mike goes back and forth on whether this movie or the previous film in the franchise is the better picture. He knows a lot of people will choose this one because of Honda and Afukabe, and Afukabe really does deliver an excellent score here, both with his Mechagodzilla theme and the Resurrection of Godzilla march not heard since 1954. But he's not so sure. For a long time, Mike thought that Mechagodzilla 74 was the more cohesive and entertaining, but on this last viewing, Mike enjoyed terror more than he had since he'd probably first seen it. 
Some of the shots in the movie are really quite spectacular, and maybe Teriyushi Nakano is the one who should get the credit for that. The same Godzilla suit that was dismissed as cute by hardcore fans in Megalon looks nothing of the sort here. Godzilla occasionally looks as good as he ever has. The 70s Mechagodzilla design is the only Mechagodzilla for Mike's money, and Titanosaurus is also a nice design, albeit looking something like a cross between Gorgo, a giraffe, and a marlin. Shinji Higuchi has said that what he loves most about Nakano's work are the huge explosions, and boy howdy are those on display here. He bloated up, he bloated up real good. The timeline involving Dr. Mifune and the black hole aliens is kind of muddy, so apparently Mifune gets fired, his wife dies sometime in the next 5-10 to 10 years, the accident happens with Katsura, and the aliens wearing surgical gear show up out of nowhere to make her a cyborg, and Mike is pretty sure they set that accident up for that very purpose. After this, they apparently give Mifune his cyborg daughter back and agree to finance his research, but don't tell him that they are aliens yet. Then the first Mechagodzilla movie happens, then the Titanosaurus controller is completed, and the aliens take Katsura to Okinawa to have the dinosaur destroy the sub looking for Mechagodzilla without telling Mifune. Then they let Mifune know that they are aliens. Sound about right? If that is not worth a rondo. Just kidding. These are obviously supposed to be the same ape aliens as in the last film, but when we see Suda unmasked, he looks more like a human burn victim. Mike gleans that just as the apes in the last film were a cash grab on the Planet of the Apes movies, this scene took inspiration from the human mutants in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. But what the hell, Mike's fan theory is that Suda was never from the same planet as the other apes, but was a human mutant experiment in their employ, possibly from Earth, or maybe another planet entirely sort of like Mifune himself. It was nice seeing Goro Matsumi return as the alien leader. The dubbers even gave him the same voice as the 74 film, though he's not playing the exact same character. So here is more room for fan theories. Are Moogle and leader Kurunoma related? Or is there a standard skin worn by all leaders? I actually really like that one. I was probably what I would go for. Also nice to see the ever-present Ikkyo Sawamura on screen again though also sad he was unable to talk at the time due to complications from cancer. Mike had recently heard that the scene where he and Katsura vanish off-screen was some type of flub, but he always assumed it was intentional. In closing, Mike thinks that everyone involved with currently handling the Godzilla franchise, whether in Japan or elsewhere, could do a lot worse than trying to siphon some of the sheer entertainment value out of even a minor Showa-era film such as this. Michael Deke says Terror of Mechagodzilla is hands down his favorite Godzilla movie from the 1970s. Though not a perfect film, this was the perfect swan song for Honda and for the Showa series in general. For the first time in a while, we have layered human characters that will have a viewer invested in from the tormented Dr. Mifune to the relationship between Ichinose and Katsura. Another step up from its predecessor is the fact that Godzilla has to face not only a rebuilt Mechagodzilla, but gentle giant-turned-killer Titanosaurus at once with no allies. The fact that Godzilla has to face these two monsters at once, without Angulus, Rodan, Mothra, Jet Jaguar, or even King Cesar to help, just further shows his resilience in starting and ending a fight. Another scene that perfectly demonstrates this is when Godzilla takes a huge barrage of Mechagodzilla's missiles and energy attacks and still keeps coming, which was an aspect that was missing in the last film. As Godzilla was harmed a bit too much by mere missiles and lasers of which he is supposed to be immune to. 
Godzilla's first appearance in this film is by far the best sudden appearance the monster has in all his history, as we first see his atomic breath hit Titanosaurus, which is then followed by a flash of lightning along with the Godzilla march that had not been heard since the original movie. This scene alone screams pure awesomeness. The one nitpick he has with this film is that it does not mention anything that's happened in the previous film, despite being a direct sequel. The fight scenes also come off as a bit less violent and a bit awkward at times, but they're still enjoyable to watch. While he finds it interesting that the suit actors for Godzilla and Titanosaurus were suit actors for Ultraman Taro and Ultraman Leo respectively, he's also curious to know why Katsura put Rodan and Manda alongside King Ghidra enlisting Godzilla's enemies when they clearly were his allies. But one of the best aspects of the film is that Katsura's sacrifice is what caused the ultimate defeat of Mechagodzilla in the same manner as Dr. Serizawa's sacrifice was used to kill off the original Godzilla. Overall, this film has a darker tone than its predecessor, which really works as we have not had a dark Godzilla film in the show era for a while. Overall, this is one of the best films in the franchise and is in Michael's personal top five favorite Godzilla flicks. He would probably show a newbie the original Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla first in order for them to get some backstory and for them to compare the difference in tone between the two films. Four Ultra no Hoshis out of five. Nice. Chandler says the premise of Godzilla fighting against two opponents all by himself seemed unfair to his six-year-old self. Even to this day, as an adult, he cannot think of an aspect of this film's story without sometimes burning with indignation. Although he appreciates both Showa Mechagodzilla films, watching them side by side is a lot like finding competing answers to a single question rather than watching harmonious, complementary entries in a single era of the Godzilla franchise. Even though Mechagodzilla is the titular character, it feels like he lost something in the way of his melee abilities compared to the previous entry while also failing to receive enough exposure slash attention within the plot. This movie would have felt more honest if it had been called Terror of Titanosaurus, guest-starring Mechagodzilla. It was jarring that the fake Godzilla suit from the previous entry was used for the end title shot, instead of simply using the Titanogoji suit from this film. Nevertheless, the ending shot is one of the most glorious ones from the Showa series, at least musically. While this film is not even his favorite Godzilla film from the 70s, it's good that Ishiro Honda decided to come back and direct one last film in the series, which he helped to create. Warren says, first, the 1970s Godzilla movies have a special place for him. He grew up in the 70s, so they reflect a lot on his childhood and what was going on then. He knows this movie didn't do very well at the box office, but honestly, he thinks it's more popular now than it was then. In his opinion, it set a precedence for things that were to come in the future. This film had a good story and had plenty of character building. There was an act one, two, and three for sure. The humans and Godzilla working together again. Let's face it, Mechagodzilla is a viable enemy, so you know it's going to be a good fight, and we love that. Filmmakers today could learn a few things if they pay attention to history. Though he can say the newer Mechagodzillas are not as interesting as the 70s Mechagodzilla. We all know that's considered a low-budget production, but is it? He doesn't think so. The special effects used then, they're unheard of now. It's an art of its own and it should be appreciated. And who cares if they use stock footage from other Godzilla films for Terror of Mechagodzilla and other films? He will say that he does prefer the Japanese version and feels that it just works better than the US version. But he does like both. His last comment would be, Will Mechagodzilla appear again? We'll see. Well, we did try and see when we got the movie Godzilla City on the Edge of Battle earlier this year and there was no Mechagodzilla in the actual movie. 
Adam says Terror of Mechagodzilla was indeed an innovational film in a time of cheese and camp, as it tried to return to Godzilla's darker roots. In the end, however, the film seems to come up considerably short of what it was trying to achieve in its plot, mostly due to missteps in the execution of the acting, editing, and direction. It's not an atrocious Godzilla film, but it is far too mediocre to call outstanding. Adam applauds what they were trying to do, however, and perhaps the biggest shame of all is getting through the film, even in its original version, and realizing how much potential it had that wasn't realized. Joe says he's sure that the army will provide tons of commentary, so he wants to ask a question for this homework since it's a rediscussion, and perhaps we can all dig deeper. We all know the origin of Godzilla's roar. You know the origin of Godzilla's roar, Dave? I forget. How about we say it right now? Do you know what it is? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Uh, The origin of Godzilla's roar is, I believe, a a glove, a leather glove uh, drenched in the same kind of uh, rosin that you would put on a violin Violin. bow uh, moving over the strings of a contrabass. Yes. For the Monster Project, I basically, I would take, I I had a bass with uh, uh, a lot of delay and distortion and played it with a violin bow in order to get that same effect to emulate the roar. You know, I asked some friends of mine who are involved in orchestras and are also Godzilla fans if they've tried to do this. Mm -hmm. They haven't. It's, what? What is wrong with them? Would have been the first thing I did. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did not know that. Anyway. Okay, so that's how Godzilla's roar was created. Yeah. Uh, oddly, many of Toho's roars, going back to his question, are actually recycled in varying ways. For example, Varan is a sampling of a variation of the 54 Godzilla roar. Giraffe from Ultraman is a warped Godzilla roar. Sure. So what Joe wants to know is how do we think Titanosaurus's roar was created? So, how do you think that was made? I want to I want to swing wild, knowing that electronic modulation was a big thing in seventies recording and everything like that. To me, it sounds like one of two things pushed through a synthesizer or something like that. An elephant? Okay. Or Gamera. Interesting. Okay. All right. That is what, and that's what I hear when I'm, when I'm hearing Titanosaurus. How about you, Adam? A short answer is I have no idea. Um, (laughs) I could tell that they're running it through, um, through, I think a chorus, uh, something that you can hear it like cutting out, Mm -hmm. essentially like a vibrato. Um, But it doesn't, it's such a, an even, uh, ascent and descent, um, that it doesn't seem to have any real distinctive character that, that you could say it's like a particular animal, though elephant is pretty close. Um, I don't think it sounds like horns. I don't think, or any other instrument that comes to mind. Um, I would agree that I think it's just some pre-existing sound that they've come up with that has been run through Push through a, a filter or something. through it through enough yeah. filters and effects as yeah. to be indistinguishable from it from the previous thing. Yeah, I think the closest thing that I've ever thought of is that it sounds kind of like an elephant. Yeah. And you know, I don't have a lot of elephant sounds at the ready here, but you know, that's how they created the Tie Fighter sound. Is hmm. a is like a originally it's an elephant sound. The oh, one that really? goes. Yeah. Get out. Yeah, for wow. serious. So I know elephants can make lots of different vocalizations, let's they say. Can. So it, it seems to me that it could be 
one of those crazy elephant sounds that they've trumpeted through some sort of filter. But you know the actual answer, don't you, Kyle? Well, <clears throat> the actual answer, I did look up on the internet. Uh, oh, the internet, you say? Yeah, the internet. You know, it's a treasure trove of information. It's a fad. <laughs> it's probably going to go away someday. Uh Apparently, there is a monster from Ultraman Ace named Brocken. Brocken. Brocken's roar, if I can play this, sounds like this. Okay. So the theory is that they used Brocken's roar and just modified it. I think it's that's that sounds even more like an elephant. (laughs) It sounds more like. The reverse of what we're used to, where uh, Subaraya would get the Toho roars right. and use them for their stuff. But anyway, uh, so there, fair. there you go. Mike Hughes feels that Terror of Mechagodzilla was a fitting and somber end to the Showa era of Godzilla movies. The film has a much darker and serious tone, not seen for quite some time. The main characters are conflicted and torn with emotion. Ichinose is blinded by his love for Katsura and in denial of her motives. Katsura is also torn between the loyalty to her father and the feelings she still harbors for humanity. Dr. Mifune, hell-bent by his feelings of revenge, does not realize that it's cost him his daughter until it's too late. No main character has a happy ending in this film. The film sees the return of longtime director Ishiro Honda and composer Akira Ifukabe, and they do not disappoint. Honda's return to the series feels refreshed and invigorated, His direction and pacing breathes life into the story and brings out the best performances in the actors. For Mike, the film has a definite Honda look and feel to it, which harkens back to earlier entries of the series. He also feels that the score is one of Ifukube's best. The dark, powerful feel of the score complements the content of the film. Characters' themes feel much better suited to the characters, and when the themes occur frequently, they don't feel overplayed. The effects work is also well executed and extensive for the time period when it was shot. Stock footage is kept to a minimum, and some great set pieces were shot. This is a significant amount of city destruction. The assault on Tokyo and the climactic battle between the kaiju are pyrotechnic extravaganza. Teriyushi Nakano and team again make the best of the budget provided to them. The Godzilla and Mechagodzilla suits look no worse for wear from the previous film. With the exception of some facial reconstruction for Godzilla, the suits are essentially the same. We're also treated to a new kaiju with an excellent design. The aquatic dinosaur, Titanosaurus. The monster fights are well choreographed and, thanks to some new camera angles, puts us into the heart of the action. After the dust has settled and Godzilla comes out the victor, he roars in triumph, wades into the sea as usual. While the somber ending theme plays, we slow zoom out from a high-angle shot, showing Godzilla in solitude. Knowing that this was his final film of the Showa era, it feels like a very poignant scene. In this final shot, we get our last glimpse of the Showa Godzilla, as well as the last collaboration for some of the founding fathers of the genre that brought the series to life. Diego says, in the words of Ashiro Honda from the book of the same name, when you compare these to the older works, you cannot help but feel that something is missing. While Honda was speaking of budgets and miniature works and terror of Mechagodzilla, this could be said of the whole movie. It's a good movie, but there is something missing. And Godzilla not appearing for the first 54 minutes is not the problem. The storyline works and is interesting. The acting ranges from good to really good, and the music and suits are great. The script was much better than one would expect from a student still in film school. 
Aliens from the third planet of the black hole are back. They do dress snazzy in Earth clothing, but put on the Mylar and break out the helmets that members of the MAC and Ultraman Leo say, wow, we'd rather not trade. We're good with what we got. They do seem to be set up to be destroyed. Terror of Mechagodzilla may be the only Godzilla film in which the U.S. release is longer than the official Japanese version due to the prologue. Diego noted there are two similar but significant different prologues depending if you watch the VHS digitally remastered version or the DVD from Classic Media. Question, who did the voiceover for the prologue? Wow, that is a great question. I wish I knew that. If I can figure that out before this goes live, I should put that right here. The Titanosaurus suit is awesome in design and execution. Save for the obvious evolutionary flaw, Titanosaurus is really susceptible to a neck punch. Diego would not show this to a kaiju newbie for their first few films, but he would give this film a confusing rating of 2.5 out of 4 Titans. P.S. They watched the subtitled version the same weekend that Burt Reynolds passed, and it seemed that the spirit of Burt was with him as the Interpol officer pulled up to Dr. Mifune's house in the Bandit's Firebird. Joey says, Terror of Mechagodzilla is Ishiro Honda's last bow to Godzilla. For Joey, it's a movie that he doesn't hate, but he also doesn't like. There's a lot of neat stuff in the film, a female lead, an awesome new score, Honda directing, Godzilla's entrance. I mean, he loves that moment so much he finds himself watching it on YouTube over and over again. To think highly of this film is difficult, though. Sure, he likes it, but he's just not overly fond of it. You know, all the goofy stuff. Despite all that, it manages to be a compelling and very somber film, just like the original. And there you have it, our Daikaiju discussion, submissions for Terror of Mechagodzilla. Big thanks to everybody who showed up here in the studio. Big thanks to all of you out there who sent in your homework. What are we watching next month? We'll be watching Godzilla Final Wars. And if you'd like to get your thoughts, questions, and reviews sent in for this film, please do so before October 21st to be included in the discussion. You know what else we're going to do next month? October is going to bring in another yokai spooktacular. So Gretchen and I have been uh, yokai nerding out for a long time now, and it's time to bring her into the yokai episodes. So I'm not sure if that's going to be the first episode of the month or if we're going to just work that in sometime. Ooh, it'd be super cool to do more than one. The weekend of October 5th in Portland, Oregon is the HP Lovecraft Film Festival happening at the Hollywood Theater. You can find out more at their website, which I will include a link to in the show notes. The special guest that I am mega interested in seeing is Chiaki J. Konaka, who is a writer and boy, howdy. Thanks to Kevin Derendorf of the Mazer Patrol podcast and blog. He hooked me up with a ton of information and I have been plowing my way through Konaka's work. He's done a ton of Ultraman stuff. I'm really looking forward to talking to him and hearing about his experiences. And uh, hopefully that will make it on to an episode released sometime in the very near future. The final thing that I wanted to mention before we really wrap up the show is that Dave mentioned, I think on Facebook or Twitter or something like that, that uh, we covered the Unmade Godzilla 94 project not only in the last episode, but at Rose City Comic Con. And apparently Terry Rossio or Ted Elliott took note of that and offered to send him the Godzilla 94 fan-published graphic novel, like limited edition graphic novel. And then, because Dave is such an awesome badass, he actually gave it to me for my birthday, said it deserved to be here in the actual HQ. And I am super, super thankful 
That is going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We are going to close the episode with something that I think is very fitting, the ending of Terror of Mechagodzilla, but not the one from the film. We're actually going to listen to the Monster Project's rendition of this particular track. We'll see you next month, maybe for something spooky. Jamata. Jamata.